agriculture is the fabric of North Dakota's economy, culture, and history. There are many factors that determine success for the industry in any given year, and we can't control all of them. Just ask farmers and ranchers who are suffering through a historic drought and low commodity prices. But fundamentally, our farmers need to be able to export in order to succeed. When 95% of all world's customers live outside the United States, they must have access to foreign markets to survive. That brings us to trade policy, the topic of this helping of the hot dish. Unlike the weather, the policies that open foreign markets to our farmers and ranchers are well within our control. There's far too much uncertainty about America's commitment to protecting our rural communities who depend on trade. For example, NAFTA renegotiations are currently taking place, and those renegotiations could have huge impacts on our farmers and our ranchers. NAFTA has been critical for them as 95% of North Dakota's corn, 100% of North Dakota's poultry, and 88% of North Dakota's beef is exported to Canada and Mexico. That's why I've been fighting to protect and expand our access to foreign markets. And so we are just going to absolutely have to have the answers that we need in order to make um, the export markets work for us. First up, we have Ambassador Darcy Vetter. Darcy was the chief agricultural negotiator within the office of the U.S. Trade Representatives from 2014 to 2017. In that role, she led trade negotiations on agriculture to help strengthen and expand markets for America's farmers. Combined with her experience at U.S. Department of Agriculture and on Capitol Hill, Darcy has a wealth of knowledge on trade policy and how we can help rural communities like those in North Dakota succeed. Darcy, welcome to The Hot Dish. And I do have to confess, I've known you a long time because Darcy um, was awarded a Truman Scholarship back in the day when I was involved in that program. She was she was and continues to be an amazing public servant and committed to uh, agriculture. And so um, uh, being a Nebraska girl, you well understand how important this is um, to our farmers and ranchers. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here and happy to talk about a topic that's important to both of us. Well, I want to start off by maybe maybe you can help out since you're first up talking about a little bit of the history of NAFTA. Um, yeah, I remember remember back when it was passed, a lot of us opposed it, thinking that this was going to cost us markets. And um, uh, as as uh, I can always admit when I'm wrong, um, that isn't the history of NAFTA. And so maybe, maybe let's start at the beginning talking about this experiment into bilateral agreements and why it's worked so well for American agriculture. Sure. Well, you're absolutely correct that this agreement is now a quarter century old. And when it came about, when we were negotiating NAFTA, it was really the biggest and most comprehensive agreement of its size. It threw open our borders to all sorts of products, really every uh, good from uh, our NAFTA 
partners, uh, except for sugar. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, it uh, really created a, a free trade zone throughout North America. And that was pretty scary for some folks who weren't quite sure that our workers and farmers uh, would benefit. But by and large, NAFTA has been incredibly positive for the United States and certainly for U.S. agriculture, where Canada and Mexico are now two of our top three trading partners every year, uh, which which place they they rank there, one through three sort of changes a bit year to year. But a broad swath of our agricultural products go north or south. Mm-hmm. And pretty much without interruption. And if you think about all the different kinds of trade barriers out there and the depth of cooperation we have with Canada and Mexico to solve those problems and allow trade to flow smoothly, that's really pretty remarkable. Well, you know, obviously there's been a lot of talk, a lot of talk during the campaign about the negative um, uh, uh, pieces of NAFTA. And so I want you just, Darcy, just to play devil's advocate and make the argument about what you would like to see changed in the agreement and how this renegotiation could actually help farmers and ranchers uh, long term if it's done right. Well, absolutely. It is an old agreement. It's really the first one of its kind that we did, and we've been improving the model as we've gone along. And so there are some areas that, frankly, need an update. We didn't used to include labor and environment provisions inside trade agreements. So for NAFTA, they were just side agreements about how we would cooperate on labor and environment. It's time we put those kinds of obligations into the agreement to make sure that all three countries are upholding uh, key standards on labor and environment and enforcing their laws. Um, We've seen SPS barriers, those food safety and animal and plant health rules, have become bigger and and more difficult trade barriers between countries over the years. And we had an improved model for how we deal with that uh, in trade agreements that we negotiated in the TPP. Uh, For the most part, Mexico and, and Canada are pretty good players on those issues, but it would set a great model for the rest of the world if we also started following those those additional standards, better transparency about those rules so we know what conditions and standards our products are going to face when they cross borders, um, a more attention to sound science as the basis. Uh, that's an easy area where I think we could update and make some changes. And frankly, a lot of our trade now happens in the digital economy. And there are no provisions in NAFTA that deal with digital trade and data flows and things that are important. And frankly, even increasingly important to agriculture and small businesses who would like to sell their products and services online. Well, and, and, and so I think it's important that none of us should think that this agreement doesn't need updating. But one of the one of the starting points that we have laid down with um, uh, Bob Lighthizer, who's the new USTR um, uh, ambassador, is do no harm. And, and I have to tell you, I think from what we're seeing right now in terms of market reaction, low commodity prices, the dollar value is going down, which is always good for our ag exports. So, um, you know, that, that that normalizing is going to be helpful. But, you know, we know we need to trade. And one of the, the problems that I see on the horizon is if if as the as a result of um, getting some concessions on automobiles, we see a, a, a retreat from the benefits that we've had in agriculture, that would deeply concern me. You've been in Montreal. You've been at the negotiations um, working for um, your clients uh, on the on the other side of it, where are we at right now in your judgment with the negotiations and what can we expect in terms of a timeline? 
Well, I think you make a very good point about doing no harm. And I think the agriculture sector has been very clear that they don't want to see this agreement that's working well upended. And on the positive side of things, there are not that many provisions that are specifically related to agriculture that are on the table. And I think the administration tried in the beginning to say, eh, we're not going to ask for much on agriculture, so that's how we're going to do no harm. I think, unfortunately, what you see in trade agreements is that every product and sector is related to the other. And if we get into a dynamic where we are asking for Canada and Mexico to sort of give up some of their benefits that they see in the manufactured goods sector, it's not uncommon to see retaliation in sectors that are important to us, including agriculture. And whenever we have entered into sort of tit-for-tat uh, policies on trade where, you know, we take one move, the other country then moves in retaliation, agriculture is at the top of that list. Mm -hmm. And so I think there is some concern there. The good news is that the Montreal round uh, just last month, people were very concerned about what the outcome would be uh, and the State of the Union address. Would there be some big announcement on trade? Would we be leaving NAFTA? I think we've actually seen um, things have turned a corner a bit and that the focus is not as much on the possibility of withdrawal, but on trying to find a solution in NAFTA. Um, unfortunately, really tough issues, like you mentioned on, on automobiles and rules related to that, a sunset clause on whether we'd have to renegotiate the agreement periodically, um, those remain. And there doesn't seem to be a common approach to how to solve them yet. And to find that approach with Mexican elections coming mm -hmm. this summer, with our midterms right around the corner, that process could take a while. So I think it's quite possible that you would see these negotiations last into 2019. And on that last note, going back to the idea of doing no harm, the longer the negotiation, the longer the period of uncertainty for our Mexican and Canadian customers to say, at the end of this, am I going to have the same access to those U.S. products I used to have in a duty-free way, in a reliable way, or should I just start maybe purchasing a portion of my products elsewhere? Yeah. Should I look to Brazil? Should yeah. I look to Argentina? For corn. Yeah. I mean, we, we already saw that. Uh, the other point that I want to make, and you're well, well aware of this having sat at the table, that trade policy does not happen in isolation. Trade policy happens against the backdrop of uh, uh, geopolitical challenges. Um, and one of the, the things that I see on the horizon that has me worried is the Mexican election, which I think is in July. And um, I think that the uh, th this this all gets tied into um, the border issues. It gets tied into you know campaign statements. It gets tied into um, uh, a kind of nationalistic pride. Um, you know, so if you're Mexico and you're running a campaign saying, "Well, I'm not going to be bullied by the United States," and that campaign's a successful campaign, it does in fact create a backdrop, a political backdrop that will make the NAFTA renegotiations even more difficult if, in fact, we see a change in uh, leadership in Mexico. You are absolutely right. Um, how you talk about trade and the trading relationship is often as important as what the details are that you discuss. And in this case, NAFTA is a very hot topic in the Mexican election. And depending on how that turns out, it may very well change how Mexico comes to the table after the summer. And since we doesn't look like we're going to be able to finish these negotiations before that election, that really matters. What will our partners want after that election time? And 
I've been saying, however, that the, the relationship with the U.S. and Mexico is not just the relationship between our governments. We are so mm -hmm. closely aligned. We have farmers across the country who have partners and friends across the border that they know well and have been doing business with. And so I do think it's important for U.S. agriculture to be sending the message that we view Mexico as our partners and our partners in the long term. And I do think that makes a difference. Darcy, coming with me on this podcast is Doyle, who is headed up the barley growers um, in North Dakota, tells amazing stories about building those relationships that you're talking about, um, you know, kind of that one-on-one -on -one outreach that we've done to grow markets, whether it's for our edible beans or whether it's for our barley. And, and, they are experiencing some pushback from, from their partners in Mexico saying, look, you know, it's getting harder and harder to know where that business relationship is going to end up. But, but again, it becomes interpersonal as well. When, when the Mexican people feel insulted, there's going to have, be a consequence um, in trade. I, I don't think there's any other way to state that. No, I think, I think that's absolutely right. And I think 25 years ago when we negotiated NAFTA, there weren't that many other countries that could take our place. And if mm -hmm. you look at, you know, Brazil, Argentina, look at New Zealand and Australia in beef and wheat and wine, um, they're ready to fill that market. So I think perhaps we took our market share in Mexico for granted a bit, and we really can't do that now. Oh, I think that's absolutely right. I, I would be remiss if I didn't pivot uh, to TPP. Um, as you know, uh, this this is something that was that you labored hard on. Um, uh, we you got the agreement. We just couldn't get approval for the agreement in Congress, and the president has since uh, signaled his withdrawal from the agreement, but the 11 countries, other countries, have moved forward. Um, just to kind of put a context on it, um, I was I was in uh, speaking with the head of uh, the Pacific Command, Admiral Harris, um, and uh, he talked so eloquently about the uh, interrelationship between trade policy and TPP and military um, uh, challenges that he has in the region. And, and at one point during our discussion, he flopped a little circle on the map behind him, and he said, by 2050, 70 percent of all the people in the world will live in this circle. And it was a visual reminder that we absolutely, I wouldn't say pivot, to need to pivot to the Pacific, but we need to be engaged. And I'm very concerned about the retraction from uh, TPP um, that that uh, this is not good for our farmers. We want to we want to produce into that market, and and you know uh, we 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 somehow have to find our way back in. I think that's absolutely right. And um, you know the TPP 11, as you noted, the 11 other partners minus the U.S. are planning to sign their agreement to go forward without us on the 8th of March. They might be implementing that agreement as soon as three or four months later, so making those first tariff cuts with each other. But I think what's remarkable about that group is we essentially left them at the altar. <laughs> we got all the way through this agreement. They made very difficult political decisions to meet U.S. demands in that, uh, in that agreement. And then at the last minute, we backed out. But they have sent a very clear signal to the United States that if we want back in, they are willing to look at that and let us back in to the deal we negotiated back in, in 2015. Um, and we saw maybe a little bit of a glimmer of hope where the president uh, uh -huh. made comments in Davos saying, you know, maybe we would consider looking at a deal with those countries, but on a substantially better deal. 
Uh, unfortunately, what we don't have is any definition of what that means, whether he was saying we would go back into the TPP itself or we see those countries as important partners. And so I think a lot of agriculture groups are saying, wait a second, I'd like some clarity here. Yeah, what, one, of the, one of the things that um, you know, I, I remind myself is that the ability to trade as defined 25 years ago, is not what we have today. And so people who say, well, you know, um, we'll, we'll go back in later, there will be supply chains established, there will be trading relationships established that will not be that easy to disrupt. And so if we don't get back in soon, uh, my concern is that we will be left behind. Is that a fair uh, evaluation? I think that's exactly right. And I think the length of time it takes to negotiate these deals, to pass them through our congressional system and implement them, means that even a delay of a year or two in starting these negotiations could be a disadvantage in terms of the tariff rates we pay into these other countries of a decade or more. So I don't think we have any, any time to waste. And I don't think we need to just be worried about the TPP. You know, the EU is out there concluding deals uh, around the globe. They just finished a deal this summer with Japan, and Japan gave the EU the mirror image of the package we had negotiated with them in the TPP. So soon, the EU will be enjoying all of the access we should have to Japan. I think that the biggest cheerleader for keeping us out is China. I mean, China is the biggest winner by the United States backing out of TPP. But that's not to say that we have I mean, one of the things, and I know you and I have talked about this, one of the reasons why we're so challenged in getting a, um, a these trade agreements done is it creates disruption, as people see it, in the labor market. And we haven't adequately defined for American workers how they can win in trade agreements as well. And so that's one thing that we absolutely need to be very diligent on because when we can get American workers to see that trade is good for them, the way farmers see that trade is good for them, then we are going to be unstoppable in terms of what we can do in, in the world. We have some of the lowest tariffs in the world, which means that we have a very open market, and, and these trade agreements are essential to lowering tariffs in other countries. That That is absolutely right. And, and you are right on the labor point. Not every industry has been able to compete or has seen, you know, only benefits of being in trade agreements. And, you know, frankly, through the last campaign and the beginning of this administration, I was a little bit hopeful that this focus on those who have been less able to compete in this globalized economy might mean that we put our energy behind training that next generation workforce. But instead, what you see is a trade policy focused on sort of walling off our borders or trying to balance out trade deficits, but very little focus on actually preparing our productive folks in the manufacturing sector to be more competitive and to be able to move, um, to have the skills to move their careers in, in a different direction. And the president's budget came out, and it had an increase in funding for the Department of Commerce to take more cases to put tariffs on products from overseas, but a real cut in funding on trade adjustment assistance and preparing our workers for the future. And so until we, I think, refocus those efforts, we won't really be able to address those who feel they've been left behind. You know, it's, it's a complicated area. And um, we're so grateful that uh, people like you have used your enormous talent um, to continue to promote trade for American agriculture. Um, but, but at the end of the day, we keep saying 5 percent 
of the population of the world lives in the United States of America. If we're not trading with the other 95%, we're going to get left behind. And, and even though we have the most vibrant consuming environment and people want to sell into our markets, as we see the middle class growing globally and as we see markets growing globally, if we are not accessing those markets, if we're not uh, working to um, export, to, to to turn our exports around, we are we are surely going to fail into the future economically. And you know what's interesting is, in spite of all of the talk about you know how we are we're, we're getting um, you know are getting handed our lunch in in trade policy, the single biggest year in trade deficits has been 2017. Yes. So I mean, whatever that whatever is happening isn't working. And so we need to be very nimble. We need to be turning this around. And I want to thank you so much, Darcy. I hope that you'll come back as we kind of work through the um, the NAFTA and uh, renegotiations, talk about what you see in terms of the changes um, as they get negotiated. And um, you just, just let people know that these things don't happen overnight, but uh, uh, the economy moves pretty fast in the world today. And if we, aren't, if we aren't nimble, if we aren't doing what we need to do, we could get left behind. That's right. And thank you so much for the opportunity to chat with you today. Really okay. appreciate Thanks, it. Thanks, Darcy. Thanks, thank Ambassador, I should say. now is Doyle Lenz, a North Dakota farmer who grows barley, wheat, and soybeans on his family farm in the in um, northern North Dakota. Doyle is a North Dakota Barley Council board member, and he knows firsthand the challenges that farmers face in today's economic and political climate. Doyle, welcome to the Hot Dish. Thanks so much for coming on. I think first, maybe if you could just describe for the listeners um, about your operation, but also about your work on the Barley Council and, and why that gives you kind of a unique perspective on the issue of trade. Okay. Well, first of all, thanks for having me, Heidi. I appreciate you inviting me to be on the show. Uh, our farm is up in the Raleigh area, so we're we're about 100 miles right in the center of the Red River Valley, and we're about 10 miles south of the Canadian border, so we're, we're not at the end of the world, but you can see it <laughs> from there. Uh, we're going to put in our 120th crop on our farm this year. And uh, it's a family farm. My mom and dad are still involved. You know, dad likes driving tractor and mom runs grain cart. And uh, my wife and daughters are involved uh, as much as they can be. They're off to school and things. But uh, true family operation. We've got a couple of great employees there. And uh, that, that's kind of the, the gist of our operation. Uh, I've been involved with the North Dakota Barley Council, I guess, since 1983 when it started as a county rep. And then uh, in the 90s, moved into more leadership positions there. Uh, coming to Washington often, and uh, <laughs> consequently was working on trade back in them days, and now it's uh, become a, a popular thing again. Unfortunately, uh, I'm not necessarily liking the direction we're going on trade. We we had a good run of uh, twenty some years of moving forward on trade, and uh, now what I'm what I'm what I'm witnessing in my view is that we're kind of going backwards a little bit. When you when you look at uh, North Dakota agricultural products and you look at where those products are exported, um, tell us about uh, what what the relationship is with Canada and the relationship with Mexico because I think one of the things that I really want to talk about is the impact that um, disruption in NAFTA would have on North Dakota ag producers. Okay, uh, sticking with NAFTA, of course. Uh, 
Mexico is, is easily our number one uh, a buyer of malt. And I say malt because it's not just barley. It's processed in our country, so we add value to it before we send it out here. So that, that's really important at more levels than just the farmer. Uh, it's important for our malting industry as well. Uh, so it, it, it's not just a farm thing. Uh, but when 90% of our excess can go to a country that doesn't grow enough in the first place, which is very important, uh, they only have 60% of their, their malt needs in Mexico. So they need somebody to supply it. And it's just a natural fit with our infrastructure and everything to get that there. And uh, we're not able to do that in the event that we lose NAFTA. Um, on the other side of the NAFTA coin north of us, uh, on the years that our barley don't make grade, Canada uses barley as their number one feed source for feedlots and livestock. So automatically, if you have a short crop, as, as Montana experienced this year with the drought, the quality wasn't as good. So that allowed those producers in Montana to put their poor quality barley into the feedlots of, of Canada. I think one of the things people would be interested in is how how did you end up marketing your malt uh, to Mexico and and what what did it take to build those relationships that you now have um, in that country? Well, it just took, actually, it took 20-some years of, of, of getting to know these people. Uh, you know, we go to different conferences in different regions of the world. And, uh, you know, pretty soon, at you know, at the end of the evening, you're just having a beer with somebody. And, you know, I'm, I'm kind of a salesman. We're trying to talk these guys into trying something that we have. And, and we, we try to convince them that we'll be good suppliers of that product. And uh, one thing leads to another. We try to invite them to come up. And uh, we've had success. And many of these guys started with, with smaller companies or even bigger companies. And when these new companies, such as Constellation, as an example, the makers of Corona, Modelo, and uh, some other brands, uh, they were looking for a place to buy barley. And because of our relationship, they came to us. And, uh, you know, we're trying to put these things together. And these guys want to do 10 times the business with us, Heidi, at least. Mm-hmm. And they won't do that because unless there's stability in the trade market with NAFTA, they're not going to do that. So we're keeping the door open because they trust us. They're giving us the benefit of the doubt this year, kind of a pass, but we need something to happen. Yeah, I think I think what people don't understand is how much, uh, uh, especially ag leaders in my state, travel internationally, building those relationships because every good um, uh, financial relationship almost becomes uh, personal. It starts with a personal relationship, and and you've described it just so well that it just took time uh, getting to know you human-to-human, and it is really those human-to-human contacts that are keeping that relationship alive today as people confront this challenge of of what's where's NAFTA going to be in the future? Do you really want to do business? with Mexico? Do you really want to do business with Canada? Why isn't your governor, uh, government respecting our government and, and honoring this agreement that we signed? And, you know, I've, I've spent some time with, uh, with Lighthizer, the new trade rep, who's very capable but has a different attitude about trade negotiations and, and trade responsibilities than what we've had in the past. You know, he's looking at bilaterals, but bilaterals don't always work out very well for farmers. And so we're really concerned about which direction this is headed. And when you talk about your farm and you talk about the uh, diversification and you talk about these relationships, you have to be a marketer. We have to. We, we simply cannot absorb what we do in our country agriculturally. I mean, uh, at least 25% of everything we grow in America is exported. 
and there's no way you can tell the producers that you're going to have to cut back 25%. That's that's the part of the crop that's the profit, if there is any, and and it just doesn't work. So. Well, I think if you said cut back 25%, you're not going to grow that or sell it, you wouldn't be in business very long no, in, in no, production it, agriculture. No, it just isn't going to work. I, I think people would be really interested in knowing more about your annual um, craft beer um, tours that you do, Doyle. I, this is such a great story about the growth of craft beers in, in America and what that means for the barley industry and, and barley producers. Well, we, you know, we've seen an opportunity, Heidi, with, with the... Because uh, you are a salesman. <laughs> well, well the, the, we've seen that these guys are using 20% of the malt, you know, grown in America. And uh, we said, we we got we to gotta start visiting with these guys. You know, we got to make a connection. We want that to be North Dakota barley that they're using. And so we basically are handing out flyers at their convention. And now I want you to understand, craft brewers, there's over 6,000 craft brewers in America now. So, I mean, their convention is 16,000 people. We're the only guys there that had jackets and ties on. I mean, these guys are in shorts and tattoos and work boots. And uh, so we had to readjust a little bit. Uh, we tried their products. We invite them to North Dakota. But oh, was, that, was that painful, trying their products? Uh, to a point. Um, <laughs> some of them aren't that good, I'll be honest with you. And, and I, I, I developed a new vocabulary of like, that's interesting or that's very unique or something like that because I try to be as nice as I can. But, but, but in any event, we partnered with NDSU. We, we, we brought these guys to a barley beer school, we call it. We bring them to North Dakota. Uh, we have a sign-up, and it goes rather quickly because we can only have about 30, enough for a motor coach. And we, we, uh, we educate these guys with uh, the economic department at NDSU about uh, the economics of barley and risk management and trying to put it in place for their breweries. And then uh, we load them on a motor coach, and we basically have coolers, and we head across the state. And uh, one time we were on a prairie trail. It might be what you're alluding to. And uh, I was standing on the roof of the bus trying to find a combine that was going, looking for a dust ball in the prairie. And, and, and by God, we found one. And <laughs> down the prairie trail we go with this motor coach with a bunch of people that have never been to North Dakota. It's been a flyover state. And uh, we pull in, and one of the industry guys, actually from Roar Malting, I go, do you know this guy? And they go, yeah, we do. It, he's one of our producers. So the guy shut the combine down. We explained how combines work. They got to look at the very malt that they're buying, and uh, it turned out great. But but we've been doing this for several years. We've built some great relationships, and uh, we're selling some North Dakota products to some of these guys. Well, so. I know. And as, as um, this craft brew industry grows internationally, even more opportunity. And we're also starting to see more and more people who grow hops in North Dakota. And that's really an acquired, you know, kind of uh, unique flavoring. You know, you spend time with people who grow hops, it's fascinating. And that's a tough one because hops don't like wind. And as you know, North Dakota has a little bit of wind. But no, it, it's, it, it's, it's been kind of refreshing in a way. The young people really, you know, uh, engage in that, that craft brewing and we kind of like to be a part of that so well the, the, what everybody needs to understand is that it, it's it's critical to the growth of this industry which a lot of people have gotten very involved in and it's become diversified where we saw all this concentration in the beer industry and now it's really kind of become very very diverse but all of this is co- dependent on whether we can export whether we can keep those farmers producing the barley and actually market their products 
It really is. Without them, exports, we're in big trouble. Now, now that said, we're trying to work on things domestically as well. Uh, we've got a small food-grade barley program going on in southwest North Dakota, which I think this year will be up nearly 10,000 acres. So, I mean, it's coming along. That's that's going in mostly to Japan and Korea, markets we worked on for 20 years to get. But we it takes a long time in Asia to develop relationships, which... TPP, which is another trade thing we, we could be talking about, uh, is kind of put the brakes on that. So we're very worried. The administration said they were going to start bilaterals, and we're a year into this thing, and there's no bilaterals. So we're quite quite nervous about that. Another thing domestically, uh, the North Dakota Barley Council has been working on pet food. Uh, now, because of some certain GMO issues and some starch issues and things like that, barley is actually a pretty darn good product to use in dog food. So I, I want the producers back there to know that we're trying to look for ever, other avenues, you know, to, to help them get rid of their barley. Well, you know, and that's what happens when you have trade disruption. When your markets are disrupted, you look for other markets. But it'd be great to bro- grow the barley industry It'd be great to continue to, as you do, encourage people to plant barley. It would be. But, you know, at the end of the day, I've I've always said I want my barley guys to be, you know, to make money at it. I don't want them just to grow barley so they can sell dollar and a half feed barley. I want them to be a good profitable crop in their rotation so that uh, they make money. And, you know, quite honestly, that they're proud to grow it for these industries that are are kind of fun. Well, it, just switching just quickly to TPP. When we look at TPP, a lot of people are always kind of intrigued because I've probably probably become the most pro-trade agreement Democrat here, um, in part because what, of what we do in North Dakota. I mean, we, we basically have a commodity-driven economy, some value-added, but what we really want to do is we really want to become a, a um, producer for the world. And, and only 5% of the people, in fact, less than 5% of the people on the earth, on the entire you know, uh, globe, uh, live in the United States of America. I don't think people realize until you've traveled that to understand the, the sheer volume of people. Uh, and, the, and even within our own country, Heidi, you know, I, I've been, I seen a statistic here not long ago that I've been using lately that, you know, there, there's two counties in California. You have Orange and L.A. County that have more population than our seven states up there. Yeah. I mean, it, 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 it's, so the question is, how do you begin to um, convince people that a good trade policy for this country, not retreating, not going into isolation, is essential for the future of farming, is essential for the future of any kind of manufacturing in this country, is essential to the future of growing our intellectual capability. Because if we can't export it, we aren't going to be competitive going into the future. You're right. We, you know, we, we simply can't rely on our own resources here to utilize everything we have. I mean, even if we used every bushel of corn for ethanol, we still, we still have too much residual supply of everything else. And of course, then we'd overflood the market with, you know, the economics of this would be too much ethanol. So then you'd have to grow more soybeans and so on. You'd have more of them. Uh, I always look at the TPP and I tell my neighbors, you know, I said how important that was because, you know, along the northern tier, we have we have a nice rail service that goes right to the PNW, which goes right into that Asian market. If you eliminate that, we're the last people on the chain to use the soybeans in the U.S. Mm-hmm. I mean, so that's going to affect us. Our bases are going to get even worse than they are already, and it really, really limits what we can be doing. Now, if we have a NAFTA agreement, and since we're not in TPP, I'd argue let's let's make that 
that NAFTA agreement better so that maybe we can haul soybeans to Canada where they're involved with the TPP. That would indirectly get us an outlet for those soybeans, for instance. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, we shouldn't have to do workarounds, though. We should. We, we need we need to make sure, and I, the, and I do have to say this, I think Sonny Perdue, the Ag Secretary, has been particularly aggressive within the administration in protecting our trade relationships. He knows how important it are, th- these, these trade relationships are, but we also need to understand that that these these relationships and supply chains and and uh, you know as you described it the relationship that you have with with Corona and with Constellation these don't happen overnight they happen over a long period of time and when you disrupt then you've got problems and and right now the the point that I've been making with the with the ambassador the USTR Lighthizer is you know, look, you're already seeing the impacts of what you guys are doing in the marketplace. Right now, you know, you, you talk about a five-year contract. Let's say you're going to go sign a five-year contract. Who who on either side is going to do that without knowing what that trade relationship is going to be? No, they're not going to do that. And and that that, strate- that strategy of, of uh, we'll, we'll scare them into a, an agreement, you know, every five years is not the way that, that we intend to do business. And that's not that's never been our goal and how we want to do things. We want to build long-term relationships where we're not just business, we're friends. And, uh, I mean, that's, how, that's really how the Mexican thing started with us, Heidi. Uh, a, a friend of mine from Mexico City called my house one evening, and one of my daughters, which all three speak Spanish, answered the phone. He said hola, she said hola, and away they go speaking Spanish. And I'm like, I'm listening in my chair, like, what are these two talking about? And we got on the phone, and you know, to this day, that was, that was many years ago, he quotes me yet to say, you know what, I did business with Europe for 30 years. And nobody ever spoke one word of Spanish to me. I call Northern North Dakota and I have a conversation with somebody. And that means they care about our culture and that we're friends. And we've been good friends and we've done a lot of business since then. He, my daughter's conversation was good for the barley producers of North Dakota. <laughs> I can tell you that. So. Well, on that note, we're going we're gonna to close. But I want you to know, um, if anyone can sell barley to the Eskimos, it's you, Doyle. I don't, I don't care about barley. I'll sell them beer, though, you know, and uh, we'll have to sell them koozies to keep it warm. <laughs> well, just, just so people know that I always tease the barley folks when they come in. Um, I see all the commodity groups, but I tease the barley folks because they have the world's best slogan. And the slogan is, no barley, no beer. And that's right. Yep. <laughs> good, good luck and um, get enough rain. Um, continue to produce, and we'll continue to try and write policy here that works for American agriculture and for the barley growers. We appreciate everything you do, Heidi, and uh, it's fun working with you. Okay, take care. With so many countries around the world eager to buy North Dakota-grown products, it does not make sense to deny our farmers access to those markets. I often say that if we're not exporting, we're losing, and our rural communities will be the big losers if we see disruption to trade agreements like NAFTA. I'll keep up the pressure to protect our farmers and all of our jobs that agriculture supports in our state and in so many rural communities across the country. Our rural communities can thrive if we aren't left behind in trade. Thanks so much for listening to The Hot Dish.